morning. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. It is so good to see you. My name is Mike Wilmer. I'm the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are excited that you have worshiped with us this morning and that you are here. Congratulations to all of you. You have successfully survived the hour less of sleep. There, are, there have been some casualties to that hour, it seems. My, my question is, in about 15 minutes, will more people come rolling in, or will they just have said, wow, I forgot. So, but you made it. In this day and age of technology and smartphones, I don't even have to worry about it. I don't care. I just go to bed, close my eyes, and my alarm wakes me up in the morning, and it changes overnight all by itself. If you're still using one of those alarm box things, they may have been struggling a little bit. But anyway, it is so good to see everyone this morning. We have been preaching a series called Counter Cultural, and this is the sixth week, and we will have a weird, odd finish to this because we will finish with the seventh week next week. Um, some, uh, one of my friends, he was talking to me about the countercultural series, and he's asking me like, where I'm getting some of my information and, and stuff like that, and, and um, asked me how long it was going to be, and I said seven weeks. He said, seven I said, yeah, that's a weird number for a sermon series. I was like, eh, it works. It's countercultural. That's good. <laughs> so anyway, we've been in this series called Countercultural, and um, we've been handling different parts of our journey of faith with God and, and, and what that looks like and how that our journey with Christ is indeed countercultural to what we experience and what we see in our world. And and the idea of being countercultural is not for the sake of being different or for the sake of being difficult, but honestly, it's for the sake of being biblical. Jesus' teaching himself was very countercultural to his day. The things that he would say, the way he would preach, the way he would love, he lived a very countercultural life. And so today we're going to spend some time talking about a countercultural community. Um, I, I am a firm believer that. That, that we were designed by God to be in relationship and in community with one another, with a, a circle of friends intimately, as, David, as is illustrated with David and Jonathan's relationship, all the way to a body of Christ, which would be the church. These are all parts of our walk with Christ and, and a part of being in community together. And so as I, as I launch into that, I want to share real quickly a passage of scripture that Jesus, I shared it briefly last week, but Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That's the, the, the picture. I consider that the picture-perfect image of what community is supposed to look like. You are the salt of the earth. You're designed to be flavor. You're designed to bring flavor to the earth. 
Most people look at Christianity and look at following Christ as this drab and boring thing and this dull thing, but the reality is you have more flavor than the world has. Somebody, somebody needs to just to let that sit in their heart for a moment that you are flavorful. It's the way God made you. He designed you to be that way. He also designed you to be this light that is seen, and when this light is seen, it draws people to Christ. If Christ is living in you, you're, you're designed to be that light that draws everyone to you. This is why we were designed for community. Salt is meant to flavor something other than just yourself, and a light is meant to shine somewhere other than just yourself. So the question I want to ask you and want you to comp, uh, contemplate throughout the rest of this message today is, is a countercultural community the answer to restoring the soul of the world, winning skeptics and even revitalizing faith? That's the question that, I, 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 that you can answer. And I personally have my answer and my belief, but um, one of the things that I want you to know, I want you to realizes the importance of this thing called community. And so one of the things, so what I'm going to talk to you about today is what makes our community countercultural. Because people are gathering all over the place all the time. They're gathering for football games and they're gathering for bridal showers and baby showers and weddings and funerals. People are gathering on a regular basis. But what makes the gathering of God's people different. And so I've got a few things for you to work through with me. You got to fill in the blank sheet. Um, I've got a few blanks on there, a little bit of work for you. The very first, and I think perhaps one of the most important things that separates us from the rest of the world in this countercultural community is simply God's presence. Because in all of these other gatherings and all of these other places, filled clubs and filled bars and, and funerals and weddings, and there are some funerals and some weddings that are, are, don't fall into this category. But in all these gatherings, tailgate parties, football games, basketball games, I mean, March Madness is upon us. That I know people who will take off work and gather in a bar to watch basketball. I resemble that remark. Every year I take time off and I tell people I'm about worthless come March Madness time. I'm glued to college basketball because I love it. But there's these gatherings that are taking place all over the world. And the one thing that's very different in our community is the presence of God. Look at what the Bible says and what David wrote in Psalm 16 verse 11. I'm, I'm going old school for this passage of scripture because I love the poetic beauty of this verse in the King James Version. The Bible says, thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are the pleasures forevermore. I just love the way that sounds. I'm going to read that again. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And so one of the things that is one of my, probably my greatest passion in my journey with Christ is to break down God's word and get an understanding of it in its original context. And so there's a few things that I want to highlight in this passage of scripture that reflect how important 
and also how powerful the presence of God is in our lives. Now, let me preface this by saying I come, when I speak of the presence of God, I come from a very charismatic background. I come from what others would label me as charismatic or Pentecostal or spirit-filled or whatever you want to call those things, those labels that, that we place on religion and people. I come from that background. I, I, I believe that as a, as, as, as a Pentecostal person or a charismatic preacher or a spirit-filled man, whatever you want to call me, I believe that we are people of the presence of God. You can find yourself in a lot of churches that don't emphasize how important the presence of God is in our lives. And so that won't be this place. And so let's break this down a little bit. The very first part of verse 11, I broke this down into three sections. The very first section says, thou wilt show me the path of life. So David is in this conversation with God and he is saying, you, you're going to show me the path of life. This idea of showing him the path of life is, he's really what he's saying to God is, God, you are going to make something known that was previously unknown to me. All through our lives, we feel like we know the path that we're supposed to take. All through our lives, we feel like we know what we're going to do. I mean, granted, we're going to go to school as a young person, and then we're going to grow up, and then we're going to go to college, and then we're going to get a job, and then pay off that college debt for the next 20 years. And this is, this is our path and our plan. But here's the challenge to those thoughts. Sometimes those are not God's thoughts. Because according to David in Psalm 16, the path that he is laying out is a previously unknown path. It's actually referring to the word of enlightening. And so that only way that path can be found is truly in the presence of God. In our daily lives, in our daily walk, in our daily prayer, in our daily worship, is being in the presence of God is what shows us this previously unknown path. This path is referring to a specific journey. See, there's a lot of there's a lot of paths in life. There's a lot of paths in the Christian faith and in our journey with Christ. There's the path that everybody should be on the same path headed towards heaven and headed towards the kingdom of God. And, and, and I referred to this last week about how the Bible says that narrow is the gate, the path that leads to righteousness. Wide is the gate and the path that leads to death and destruction. And so everybody is on this path in some way, shape, or form. And in this path that David is referring to in the original language literally means a specific journey or direction or a way for your life. It's not for a way of life, but a way for your life. I, I submit to and believe that every single person has a unique call by God. There's something that he has designed just for you to accomplish that no one else can accomplish the way he designed for you to accomplish it. It doesn't necessarily mean that someone else can't do what you do, but they just can't do it the way you do it. They can't do it with what you bring to it. That there's a specific journey and a specific path that is designed just for you. And here's what's cool, because he says there is this path of life, and this this word life, it, it, it sounds like, what does that actually mean? Or what is life in referring to? This path and this, this life is referring to an active and reviving life. 
so a fountain of life, so to speak. And when you think of a fountain, one of the cool things and unique things about a fountain is a fountain continually flows. It's pumping water all the time. It is continually flowing. And only, in, only if something happens to the pump that's underground that you can't see does this water stop flowing. And so uh, the fountain is continually flowing and it's constantly recycling and it's constantly reviving so that it stays fresh and so that it stays beautiful and it stays continuous. And that's what David is talking about, this fountain of life that is active, that is reviving. This is the direction that God is leading you. He's leading you to a, in a path that brings you to this active and full life. That is all in just the first section of verse 11. Let's look at the second part of verse 11 when he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy presence is fullness of joy. That phrase Thy presence in the Hebrew is translated to the means literally in the presence of God's face. That's what it actually means. In the presence of God's face. It's the same word that's used in Genesis upon creation when he said the spirit of God hovered the surface of the, of the waters. That word surface of the waters literally meant the face of the water. So the spirit of God was hovering the face of the water. When David says to us, when he says that you at, at, in thy presence is the fullness of joy, that word presence literally in the face of God, there's fullness of joy. So that's why when, when, when people shout out or when people pray or people teach or people preach and say to seek the face of God, that's what that means. Seeking the face of God means I am seeking the very presence of God. I want to see you, God, face to face. Maybe not necessarily in a physical form because the Bible does say that no one can see the face of God without dying. And we know the account of Moses when he came down from the Mount of Transfiguration and his whole countenance was changed and he didn't even look the same because he encountered the presence of God and he encountered it in a way that changed everything about him. And when it changed everything about him, it changed what people saw. And so here's what I will suggest, and this might be challenging for some. If you come into the presence of God and you walk out of the presence of God and you haven't changed and people don't see what's changed, you may have not actually encountered the presence of God, but this own manufactured emotional state of what you thought was God's presence. Because the reality is the presence of God changes you on the outside as well as the inside. Everywhere you look in Scripture, whenever it talks about God's presence or the face of God, it changes what people see. And so if you look the same, each and every Sunday, each and every Sunday you come in and out of the presence of God, each and every Wednesday if you pray, or each and every Thursday when you're in your private time, if you come out of that moment and you are still the same and you still look the same and nothing changed, something's missing. There's a disconnect somewhere. That's what countercultural is all about. It's different. It looks different. It feels different. It speaks different. It acts differently. So David is saying, in seeking the face of God, we find the fullness of joy. And I, I love this idea of fullness of joy because here's what it actually, actually means. It actually means this satisfying abundance. When it says full, it's a satisfying abundance. 
Think about it like this. When you go to a local restaurant and, and you love the food and it's some of your favorite food that there is and you sit down and you enjoy an entire meal and you sit back and say, oh, I'm full. And there's this just feeling of satisfaction in that fullness. And am I the only one that gets that way at a restaurant or anywhere else for that matter? Hopefully not. But I, I love food. I'm passionate about food as you might be able to tell. But uh, the, that's, that's the idea. There's this fullness that God has. There's this satisfying abundance that God has, but it's an abundance of what? The Bible defines joy as an exceeding amount of gladness. So there is this fullness, this satisfying filling of gladness available to me. And all it requires is that I seek the face of God. All that it requires is that I find myself in the presence of God. Look at that. In, in just the first two-thirds of that passage of scripture, you have a God that has a path designed specifically for you, a direction just for you. He's going to make something known that was previously unknown, and that on that path, there you will encounter the presence of God, which will bring you a satisfying fullness of what? An exceeding amount of gladness. I don't know about you, but there are some folks that I encounter on a fairly daily basis that they need an exceeding amount of gladness in their life. They have this face on them that says, I hate my life. And I just, when I encounter people like that, I'm like, Jesus, touch them with joy. Reveal yourself to them. Because that's just a, oh, it's just a sad way to live life. Life's not perfect. My life is nowhere near perfect. Uh, there are times when I stress. There are times when I'm overwhelmed. There's times when I'm angry and I'm disappointed. I'm frustrated and I'm all these things. But somehow, some way I figure out how to put on that, that gladness. Not as, a, not as a mask to cover it up, but as a true heart condition that shines through that if that makes sense. I'm not trying to put on, see, some people will say, well, I'm not going to be fake. Well, then you got to figure out how to be real and be glad, because if you're not going to be fake and be mad because you're not fake, then you're actually not in the presence of God either, because in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy, and that fullness of joy should be seen on your face. Somebody needs to tell their face that they saved, just saying. Let's look at the last half of that verse. Just the last, last section of that verse. He says, at thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And it just seems like, okay, at that right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let me tell you what's in there. First of all, understand that the right hand is considered the hand of honor. The right hand is considered the hand of honor. It's the place, if you look through scripture, it's the place, based on the definition of this word, the right hand, it's the place where blessings flow. It's the place where wisdom is found. It's the place where Jesus sits currently at the right hand of the Father, and it even exists in today's world. Matter of fact, it's even an adopted principle in the United States military. I know this because I served in the army and I remember a time when I'd, be walking, when I'd be walking and my dad is the one who taught me this. I'd be walking with my dad who was a command sergeant major and my required position was to his left 
and a step behind for a couple of reasons. Number one, the right hand was the place of honor for a higher ranking person. Number two, it's because that's where the weapon side is. And you need to not be in the way when they draw the weapon. If you're on the right side and they draw their sword, you might get cut. If they're on the right side and they draw their gun, you might get shot. But if you're on the left side, you're in the, you're in the place of safety. You're in the place of honor because the right side is where there's honor, the right side. And it ultimately would become that way that anybody who served in the United States military and, they, and that, that particular branch gave what they call combat patches, which is a patch to honor the conflict in which you served. It goes on the right shoulder. These are all even today's ways of showing that the right hand is the hand of honor. It's where blessing flows. It's where wisdom is found. Matter of fact, one of the schools of thought, as I was reading and studying this, I didn't previously know this part. One of the schools of thought was that person on the right being the higher ranking, being the one with more experience, was going to be the one who's more likely to react favorably in a battle situation that would then be able to protect everyone else. The right hand, the hand of honor, the same as working for God. God has placed Jesus at his right side making intercession for you and me. So it's out of the right side of God is where blessings flow, where wisdom is found, and where Jesus currently sits. And these pleasures that David speaks of are things that are delightful and sweet. I love that definition because I love sweet. Cake, cupcakes, I love sweets. And so when I think about these pleasures, I'm relating too much to food today. I must be hungry. The pleasures that David is speaking of are things that are delightful and sweet to every sense. It's not just sweet to taste, but sweet to see and sweet to hear and sweet to feel. These are the things that God has in store for you just from this one passage. So this means that in the place of honor sits a Savior who is deserving of all glory and all honor. From his hand flows wisdom and blessing that is sweet and pleasurable that will last forever. That's just all of that is found in that one simple Verse. Can I, can I encourage you this morning to study God's Word, to get into God's Word, to study it for its depth, because it can change your life when you see what is actually the, the glory of God actually in the penned Word in Scripture. It changes your life. I don't know about you, but this simple, Thou wilt show me the path of life in Thy presence, in, in, in thy presence is fullness of joy at Thy right hand, it are the pleasures forevermore. That one verse, that one simple Scripture from the psalmist is life-changing. If we bring it to this level of comprehension... Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the Bible says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So the same Spirit that raised Christ from the grave is the same Spirit that lives within you. And it was the holy, the presence of God that raised Christ from the grave. It's that very presence, that very power that lives within you that has this ability to raise dead things. Let me move on because I could spend a lot of time there. The second thing that is countercultural about this community is that together we are family. Together we are family. 
Acts chapter 2. Verses 42 through 47, set the stage real quickly for you. This takes place, this, this passage of scripture is taking place after the Holy Spirit came, after the church was empowered and, Paul, and Peter preached boldness and 3,000 were saved. After that moment take place, that is the birth of today's church. This is the birthplace of today's church. And this is what it says. See, here's what happens. Some things are, when things are born, they're, they're things that something is created that over the course of time, it gets twisted and it gets turned and it gets turned into something that it was never meant to be. It's even the life of a person. When they're born as a baby, they're this perfect, perfect creature. Perfect in every way. Beautifully and wonderfully made knit together in its mother's womb. And there's this perfection about this child that as this child then grows up, they turn into full-blown adults who aren't so perfect. And not only are they not so perfect, they are downright evil in a lot of ways. How, I mean, if you think about it, it, it changes the, the way we think about things. If you think about some of the most evil human beings ever to walk the earth, at one point in time, they were this beautiful, perfect baby created by God. And that same thing happened to the church. This is, what the, this is the church that was born in Acts chapter 2. This is Peter preaching. Peter has preached the gospel. 3,000 are saved. And this is what then took place. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. Notice what it says. All the believers, and I've said this before, and I've probably said it too many times, and I'll say it too many more times in my life. The word all in the original language means all. Not some, not half, not part, but all. All. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. In verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all, there's that word again, man, there's a lot of alls. The believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. So all the believers went where? To church. To church. They so oh, now, it's, now this is going to start to rub you the wrong way. So let me apologize before I bring you the word, and don't shoot the messenger. They gathered together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. Can't even get folks to come to church once a week. But all believers in the New Testament church were going to church every day. They worshiped together in the temple every day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared meals, shared their meals with great joy and generosity. All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. The greatest church growth strategy in the history of the world. I don't care how many books you read or how many books are written about it. The last half of verse 47. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. 
There is a process. There is a church that God birthed on that faithful day after Peter had preached and 3,000 people got saved. Those 3,000 people needed a place to go. So they went to church. They went to church every day. They did life together. They were in community together. And they gave people shun, uh, they, they, they shun and they shudder and they freak out over a tithe of what they've earned to God when the New Testament church said they sold everything so that no one would lack. Could you imagine if we lived a lifestyle that suggested we would give more than we would consume? Just think about it like this. Just think about it. Just take your bills, move them aside because you pay those to live, and everything else is left. And when I say bills, I don't mean your brand new car. I'm talking what you need to survive. You need a house. You need food. You need clothing. I'm not talking, oh, I, I got bills because I got $600 a month car payment because I had to have that new car. I'm not talking that's not bill. It might be a bill in your house, but it's not necessarily a necessary bill. But could you imagine if you slid all of those out of the way and every single penny that was left was then divided up? How many people you think in this world would be poor today? None. We struggle with giving God a percentage. He doesn't want a percentage. He wants it all. That's his desires. He wants it all. Because here's what I understand about God. If he gets it all, he knows whom he can give it to. If he knows he can get it from you, he will give it to you. That's the, that's the hand of blessing in your life. But we are created as relational beings. We are meant to flourish together in this community. Being a believer is not a solo affair. It's not the, oh, I'll just listen to podcast culture. I'll just stay in my pajamas and go to church online. And I get the importance of being online because that's where you're reaching people today. There's an absolute necessity to having social media and, and media in, a, in the church because that's where people are. And Jesus the same went where people are. But the, to the believer, assembling together was countercultural and became the norm. And today it is very countercultural. Being a believer is plural, and the church is a family. It's a community. We do life together in the ugly and the good. How many of you have had ugly experiences in your family at some point? If you don't, then if you haven't, then you have no family. Nothing will, do, nothing will bring out ugly like a funeral. The death of a loved one will bring ugly out fast. Right? This is family, and we do life together in family. See, here's what happens. When you have their family and there's a death of a loved one and it gets ugly and it gets explosive and it, something gets nasty within all that, our, our, our tendency is to just get angry and frustrated. But guess what you can't do? You can't cut them out. They're family. And you're going to be there for them. After you get past all your anger and your frustration, you're going to be there for family. In the church today, it's different. In the church, if you're angry, you're frustrated, they cut you out and walk away. That's not, that's not the Acts chapter 2 church in any way, shape, or form. It's not reflective of that at all. We have come so far. I would almost suggest we've come so far, we don't even resemble the biblical church any longer. Especially in the United States of America. Where it's become such a, commu a consumeristic society. Yes, even the church. 
And at a time of great division in our culture right now, the church is naturally diverse makeup. The church is naturally diverse. I mean, think about it. Across generations and cultures, races and genders, we are united together as one family in the body of Christ. It's a picture of heaven. In Revelation, it says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, but it also says that everyone, all, every nation, every tribe, every tongue are worshiping God together. Our differences are not eradicated in heaven. They're just celebrated. Imagine that. Imagine we lived in a society that celebrated difference. That's, that's the community of God. That's the countercultural community that I believe God's called us to live in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 through 25 says this, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Now, there's this reality that is, I don't think, talked about enough, but Jesus is coming back. There's going to come a time when Jesus returns to earth and he, he takes up his church. He takes up his community. That day is coming. And it says, let us not... Let us think of ways to motivate one another. Let me, let me frustrate you a little more if you're not already frustrated. Frustrate you a little more. You know that word motivate? You know, it sounds, sounds good, right? Some people get a picture of a, of, a, of a fitness instructor or they get a picture of a, a, a life coach or they get a picture of maybe even a boss who has motivation. Let me tell you something. Every fitness instructor, every life coach, and every boss, they do, there's one thing they all have in common. They irritate their people. Am I lying? Any of you got a boss that hasn't ever irritated you? Right? They irritate their people. Well, guess what? That's what that word actually means. The word motivate in that text means to irritate someone. So wait a minute. It's actually saying, let us think of ways to irritate one another. To acts of love and good works. Yeah, so I should be pushing you to the point of you getting mad at me for pushing you towards acts of love and good work. So when as that takes place, get mad at me, remember? We're family. Number three, the last, uh, oh no, that's not the last one I got for today. Number three, I'm going to rush through these because I'm running out of time. In a countercultural community, the, another thing that defines it as being countercultural is this culture of change. A culture of change. And I don't necessarily mean, okay, we're going to change how we do everything. What I mean is, I mean heart change. This church and every church in America should be a place where transformation happens, that lives are changed. If lives are not being changed, the church is dying. Faith is, it's, it's this idea, countercultural change in, in a community is this idea of faith with a realistic and sober understanding of sin and injustice in our world, but it's not resigned to accept them as unchangeable. Some people look at the state of our country and the state of our society and the state of the church and say, oh, it's, it's, it's just lost and it's, it's, there's no hope. A countercultural community that God has placed on this earth when he recreated you and, and knit you together in your mother's womb would suggest that it is absolutely able to be changed. It is absolutely able to, that, to bring hope. 
I don't care what the outlook looks. I don't care who the president is. I don't care who the governor is. I don't care what rules they put in place. I don't care how it affects you on the outside. There is hope for this world, and that hope's name is Jesus. And if we're not countercultural in our love for people and our community with one another, then yes, there is no hope. But the believers that God has placed in this earth, they should be a reflection of that hope in their community. And wherever, wherever that looks for each person is different, but there should be a reflection of this love in this community right where you are, at your job, in the city you're in, the church that you're in. It's part of what makes us countercultural. When we downplay, see, that's why, I don't, that's why I, I, don't, I don't do this. And I was actually told by a pretty wise person once that said, Mike, if you preach holiness and you preach righteousness, you will not have a big church. I'm not going to lie. I struggled with it for a little bit. I struggled with the idea of, man, preaching holiness and preaching righteousness. People just don't want to hear that today. They want to hear how everything is okay. They want to hear about how all their decisions and choices are fine. There's grace. And while that is true, there is grace. Everything's not fine. That's part of what makes this community countercultural. A, a, a writer named Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world. The glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she will invariably attract people to it. A commitment to pursuing Jesus and holiness only made possible through the blood of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit is the mark of a countercultural church. It reminded me of a Christian hip-hop artist named Lecrae. In one of his earlier works, in an album called Rebel, want to hear some straight gospel hip-hop? Listen to that. But in his album called Rebel, there was this background preaching that said, if you want to see change, read your Bible, because no one else is doing that. He said, sin is tired. Everyone is sinning. Everyone is pleasing themselves. If you want to be countercultural, if you want to be different, read your Bible. Because no one else is doing that. And I was like, wow, that is, has become so true. Number four, the last thing that I'm going to share with you that marks us as a countercultural community worship team. You can come and get set because this is a, will be a fairly quick ending. Being a countercultural community means that we seek God's presence that we understand that together we're family, that there is a culture of change. And number four, we live on a mission. We live on a mission. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, the Bible says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. And they will, be, they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Notice what it says. It says unbelieving neighbors will give honor to God because of the life that you live. 
unbelieving neighbors who give honor to God because of the life that you live. That's what living on a mission is. I think what happens in our personal lives as well as the church is we forget this idea of living on a mission. And we become complacent, we become bored, we even become insecure about our beliefs. But you have to, we have to remember to keep front and center Christ's radical and counter-cultural mission. It's very simple. Love God. Love one another. A countercultural community loves, regardless of anything, race, gender, socioeconomic background, lifestyle choices, decisions. I can, believe it or not, here's what's actually possible. You can preach holiness, you can preach righteousness, you can live holiness, you can live righteousness, and love someone who is gay. You can love someone who is a murderer. You can love someone who is an adulterer. You can love someone and still live the way God designed for you to live. Because love is not conditional upon our love for one another shouldn't be conditional upon our agreeing with lifestyle decisions and choices. You know, there are people that are disagreeing about so many different things. I think when the day comes, if the day ever comes like this and we find out that there might be one or two things we believe that we're just wrong. I'm not immune to that. I feel like I'm pretty solid in my theology and solid in my doctrine, but who knows? I'm certain the day will come that if, if it comes like this, and I don't know that it will because the reality is to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ, and everything I read about being present with Christ is just worship and declaring worthiness. So I doubt that I'm even going to worry about what I was wrong about. But living on this mission... We can love one another the way Christ loved the church. It's not about us. It's not a self-help mission. It's about growth. It's about change. Not for our own sake, but the sake of our neighbor. The blessing that comes because your life changes is one thing. But the blessing that comes to your neighbor. Just think about that passage of scripture. Your neighbor, your unbelieving neighbor will bring, give glory to God because of your life. Do you live the life to where your neighbor can say, God, you are real. God, you are honorable. You are glorious. And I submit my life to you all simply because of what I've seen over here. Is that your life? Here's the radical proposition in today's society frames everything in terms of self think about it this is what you see all over television all over the internet bettering yourself self-actualization self-promotion self-preservation selfhood and then all over the internet selfies that's the society we live in it's all about self but jesus would again teach counterculturally in Matthew 10, 39. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. 
Matthew 16, 24 through 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Twice he preached almost the same message, probably because it's pretty important. Imagine that. I wonder if anybody went to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you already preached that message. It's happened to me. I've preached a message a, t- a, t- a couple times. I preached a time or two, same message, recycled it three or four years later. Yeah, you preached that message. Yeah, you need to hear it again. I'm thinking that's what Jesus was thinking. Yeah, I did. Should have anybody even asked, but he said, let me share it with you again. Here's the, here's the goal. The goal is not to create this overwhelming hardship of faith. The goal is simply to say, God, I, I want so much of you that me, I just don't, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Because there's this simple principle that as you consume yourself with God and his presence and his glory, as you consume yourself with his word and praying and seeking him, guess what? You are covered. You don't have to do anything for you. He covers you. But we get it all out of whack because we get stressed out about our situation and we we said, I got to put my hands on it now. Because that's the only way to really fix it. Because if you ever want anything done right, you have to do it what? Yourself. Man, I lived by that thought process all the time. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That is countercultural community.